as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread the cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Uh, now, you might have noticed a couple of weeks ago that uh, President Joe Biden got into a little bit of trouble when he had one of his famous gaffes. Uh, he suggested that uh, it was time that Vladimir Putin was removed from power. Um, and it sounded to a lot of people like he was advocating for uh, an overthrow of the Russian government, uh, a regime change in Russia. Uh, now, while I'm sure most people would agree that getting rid of Putin is actually a good thing, uh, you're not really allowed to say that kind of thing if you're the American president. And the reason why it's such a touchy subject is that the United States has got a pretty checkered history when it comes to changing foreign governments. Uh, the term regime change became rather infamous in the lead-up to the Iraq war. Um, if you remember, we were told that Saddam Hussein had these weapons of mass destruction and posed an unacceptable threat to global peace and security. Uh, and so despite not having the approval of the United Nations, an alliance of the willing was formed and we invaded and Saddam was removed. And of course, ever since then, it's been sunshine and roses for the free and grateful citizens of Iraq. Well, not quite. Um, but it's a legitimate debate to have, isn't it? When is it justifiable to interfere in the affairs of another nation to bring about a change of leadership? 
when a nation's leadership is so corrupt, when they're committing atrocities against their own citizens or that of a weakened neighbour, as we're seeing at the moment, when those in power have become self-serving and rotten to the core, is it a legitimate thing, is it right to try and bring about a regime change? Well, what we see taking place in these two chapters in Mark's Gospel is Jesus announcing a kind of regime change. Uh, The failed caretakers of God's people, the religious leaders of Israel, are going to be replaced. And more than that, Jesus is going to bring in a whole new kingdom with a new leader himself. But of course, this isn't Jesus interfering in the affairs of some other foreign nation. This is God's king come to claim his rightful crown. And it begins with these events that we now call Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding in on that donkey. Now, it's an unusual scene, as we just sort of discussed with the kids' talk, because royals don't normally travel like that, do they? This is how royalty normally likes to get around. This is called the Gold State Coach. It's 240 years old, and it's been used for every coronation of the British monarch since George IV in 1821. Uh, It's gilded with 24 karat gold all over. The interior is plush with silk and velvet, and the thing is enormous. It's 3.6 metres high, it's over 7 metres long, and it weighs 4 tonne. In fact, it's so heavy it needs eight horses to pull it along. And this is just one of 100 carriages that the Queen has in her possession. See, that's how royalty is expected to travel. That's how royalty is usually seen, with these overt displays of wealth and power and grandeur. But when God's son, the King of Kings, arrives in his city, the city of Jerusalem, when he comes to claim his crown, there's no ornate carriage, He doesn't even arrive on a great stallion like a mighty warrior. He arrives on this. And not even the big one, the little one. A a colt, a juvenile donkey. And it would have, in some ways, been a bit of a funny sight, wouldn't it? It would have looked a bit amusing to see this grown man riding into town on this small beast of burden. But his arrival is in keeping with his purpose, because he's come to serve. Yes, he's come as a king, but it's a very unique kingdom that he's come to bring. In fact, this whole episode is kind of typical of the upside-down nature of the kingdom Jesus brings. But it's even more than that too, because like so many of the things that Jesus does, these events tie in with a prophecy of old. So in the book of Zechariah, we find these words... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, here is the king on his donkey. Hundreds of years before these events take place, God predicts this event. The king is seen as both glorious but humble, powerful, and yet a servant. 
And Jesus brings these two seemingly contradictory ideas together. Now, the people of Jerusalem sense something is up. They welcome Jesus with that great enthusiasm, the, the, the palm branches, the spreading of their cloaks across the road before Jesus, uh, the shouts of Hosanna declaring the, the coming kingdom of David. And they're right to respond this way. And yet, in so many ways, they've still failed to understand the nature of what Jesus is doing. It's worth reading on in the book of Zechariah to see the verse that follows this one. In verse 10, the prophecy goes on and says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's a picture of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. It's a kingdom marked by peace. And unlike the kingdoms and nations of this world, this kingdom won't belong to any one people. It's going to belong to all. And his rule won't just belong over one group of people either. That too will extend over the whole earth, from sea to sea, to the very ends of the earth. But the arrival of this kingdom means that a regime change is necessary within Israel. Israel has failed as the caretakers of God's kingdom. And its role in God's plan of salvation is about to be changed dramatically by Jesus. Now Jesus illustrates why all of this is necessary in a story that he goes on to tell after the events of Palm Sunday itself. Um, when Jesus is teaching the people, he tells this story that we know as the parable of the tenants. Uh, and you'll find that there at the beginning of chapter 12. So go to verse 1 of chapter 12, and we'll read this story that Jesus told. It says, Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus tells this story to show that the responsibility uh, to be caretakers of God's kingdom is going to be taken away from Israel's leaders. It's almost a, a brief history of Israel's relationship with God a long and inglorious history of ignoring God and of ignoring and abusing his messengers. After this series of servants is sent by the owner to collect some share of the vineyard that he owns, they're beaten, some of them are killed. Finally, the owner descends, decides to send his very own son, thinking, well, at least they'll respect him. But of course they don't. 
they take his life as well. Jesus sums up the story by explaining that the owner of the vineyard is going to come in judgment on those tenants, take the vineyard from them and give it to others. It's a frightening picture. Israel is a nation in need of renewal. Its time as the caretaker of God's kingdom has come to an end. It's an eerie prophecy in some ways of the events which are going to unfold over the next week as Jesus, the Son of God, will have his life taken. But the people's rejection of Jesus is in some ways to be expected. It's been a long time coming. And the leaders of Israel have shown no interest in responding to Jesus up until this point. In fact, in the previous chapter, we see this clear example of just how corrupted God's people and its leaders have become with the incident where Jesus clears out the temple from the money changers and the, the traders. See, what was meant to be a place of worship had been turned into a marketplace. Where still, uh, the other Gospels tell us that all this trading was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. That one place within the temple grounds where non-Jewish people could go and approach the one true God. But such was their disregard for the Gentiles that they figured they could put that unused piece of real estate around the temple to some better use. Jesus, for his part, won't have it. He despairs at what he sees, and so he drives them out. And as he does that, he teaches them. Uh, and in verse 17 of chapter 11, we find Jesus explaining what he's so upset about. He says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. See, Israel was no longer what God intended them to be. They were meant to be a blessing to the nations. They were meant to be uh, a, a temple, uh, a priesthood. That is, they were meant to show people who God was and what it meant to know him and relate to him. The temple itself was meant to be a house of prayer, not just their own, but for all the nations. They've lost their way. Jesus further explains what's going on here with a rather cryptic, um, enacted parable using that fig tree. Um, earlier that day, as Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem, he approaches this fig tree looking for fruit on it. But there isn't any. And Jesus performs this kind of enacted parable so that the disciples might understand and we might understand what's going on as he enters the city. See, in verse 13 of chapter 11, we're told that Jesus curses this tree. And the very next day when the disciples walk past this tree again, they find it withered. Now, as far as the tree goes, uh, it wasn't the season for figs. So some people think Jesus is being a bit petulant, a bit unreasonable to expect fruit off this tree and to curse it because there isn't any but that's not the point the point is that jesus is using the tree as a visual parable the fig tree is israel and its time has come because it's no longer producing fruit jesus is going to renew the kingdom renew the covenant but that also means judgment for israel judgment on them for their failure to keep the covenant to be what god called them to be and ironically, through Israel's rejection, will come blessing for the world. 
blessing to the nations. The need for Jesus to do this is all over the Gospel of Mark and littered throughout these chapters as well. Israel's leadership shows themselves to be petty and legalistic and far from God. But as Jesus engages with Israel's leaders and with the crowds, he reveals to us something of the nature of this new kingdom that he's come to bring. And I just want to touch on three aspects of this new kingdom. Um, Because in this new kingdom, there'll be a new view of politics, a new law, and a new economy. So firstly, new politics. The Pharisees raise with Jesus the issue of paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, It's kind of the hot-button topic of the day. Uh, So go to chapter 12 and look at verse 14 and see how they try and box Jesus in. It says, They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? It's a clever question. Uh, See, if Jesus says, well, you shouldn't pay your taxes, well, he's likely to attract the attention of the Romans and not in a good way. But if Jesus says, no, 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 pay your taxes, well, then they could accuse him of being a supporter of Rome and his popularity with the crowds may well plummet. But look at how Jesus responds, verse 15. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The kingdom of Jesus will not operate on the same principles as this world's. It won't be about political power or economics or military muscle. The Jewish leaders thought they could trap Jesus by making him appear to be a traitor, perhaps a a puppet of the Romans. But Jesus shows them up for their pettiness, for their misdirected priorities. It's pretty simple, says Jesus. Pay your taxes to Caesar. If you're going to use his money, pay what you owe. But more importantly than all of that, I think, Jesus wants us to recognise that these things are in so many ways immaterial. They belong to the kingdoms of this world. God is far more concerned with your heart, with your life. If you belong to him, if you're one of his people, you too should be far more concerned with the things that matter to God than playing games with politics and with human power. His new kingdom comes with new politics. But it also comes with a new law. Again, the questions are being fired at Jesus. And if you go down to verse 29, Jesus deals with this question about the law. He's asked, which of the commandments is the greatest? And Jesus' answer is there in verse 29. He says, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, the teacher agrees with Jesus in 
recognises the wisdom in his answer, declares that that's far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, in turn, commends the teacher uh, for recognising the truth and the wisdom in what he says. Because for Jesus, in his kingdom, people and relationships are what matters. Most importantly, a relationship with God that's based on his grace and his love. But in turn, God calls upon us to love him and to love others. See, our relationship with God is not just about us and God. It's also about everyone else as well. We're called upon to love our neighbour. God's people are to be people marked by their love. And so if you want to live a life that's pleasing to God, that honours Jesus, love him and love others. I'd say it's just that simple. But of course, that's not so simple, is it? But it's hard for us sometimes to accept that there is no ritual we can perform, no grand act we can do, no test we can pass to show, to prove that we've done enough, that we're worthy. Because it doesn't start with us. It starts with Jesus. We come into his kingdom by his grace, through faith in him, through accepting his loving gift of new life. And God makes us his, declares us to be his children, and then calls us to live out this life of love. The new kingdom has a new law. It also has a new economy. Go down to verse 41 of chapter chapter 12. It says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The widow places those two copper coins in the temple treasury, hardly worth the bother, worth next to nothing. But Jesus commends her. In fact, he says she's put in more than all the others because what she gave cost her something. And of course, others gave much more in dollar value. But in God's economy, her gift has more value. We see this same sentiment when Jesus criticises the show pony behaviour of the teachers of the law. Just before this story in verses 38 to 40, Jesus talks about how they love to be seen, seen in their fancy robes, love to take the most important seats at banquets to be honoured. They make lengthy prayers in front of others for show. And they do all of this because they crave the approval and the attention of others. That is what they value. That's what their economy is. In the new kingdom, we should have a new sense of what is valuable, what is important, what matters. A value that's not derived from what other people think or what other people think of us. The things that we are to value should be the things that matter to God. Because in the end, it's God's approval that we should be after, not the approval of others. 
We should be people who now live recognising that we're answerable to God and accountable to Him. And because of that, we should want to see things the way God sees them, to value things according to God's economy. And so when it comes to people, we're not to value them or judge them based on their wealth or their power and influence or their profession. And we shouldn't assess ourselves by those same measures either. Now, in this kingdom, we discover that our joy and our peace and our meaning, our value, comes from God himself. And when we understand that, it frees us. It enables us to serve others without asking, what's in it for me first? We can love other people freely without demanding that we be loved in return. We can live a new life that follows the example of our King, that wonderful example of humble service. So be thankful that this is your King. Remember what it is to be a part of his kingdom, to be a part of his family, and live a life that honours him.